Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. And a pleasant afternoon to our listeners all across the United States and Europe and all over the world. Welcome to the Water Zone. Uh, Rob Starr along with Mr. Chris Davey. And we are the hosts of the Water Zone Show. Hope everybody's having a great afternoon or evening, depending on where you are, or even morning. Uh, Mr. Davey, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you, Rob Starr. Welcome to the Water Zone yourself. Thank you. Uh, are you getting used to the, the new time that we're on? <laughs> yeah, with... Uh... <laughs> With you being on the same time zone as us now, hopefully uh, California will stick to daylight savings time here. So the vote is out this year. So we'll hopefully I think the majority of the state wants to pass it. So we'll stay on the same time year round, just like you guys in Arizona. Excellent. That'll be that'll be awesome. And the weather out there is it still warm and drought wise? I know it's drought there. Oh, it is. Uh, you know the drought's on already. Um, we are getting notices daily from the water companies here. Uh, different, uh, and, and and of course, as you know, Rob, I have lots of uh, uh, friends and constituents around that, that send me their notices as well. So yep. we, we're getting everything from stop watering your turf now to uh, you can uh, you have to uh, conserve twenty percent to only one two day a week watering and some one day a week watering. Yeah, and you know with the one day a week and the time that they said how much water, you know, we talked a little bit about last time. You know, there's a difference between watering with a rotor and or watering with a, a spray body head. And, uh, you know, a lot of those things haven't been worked out by a lot of water agencies. They just put the rules in place only one day a week for so much over. And I don't know. Uh, it, it's getting worse. And, you know, all the people who went out and bought all the smart irrigation equipment and reduced their water more than 25 percent, you know, years ago, um, you know, it's going to be tough. But what's interesting to note. Uh, I think we did talk about it last time that even though uh, the governor has asked us to reduce water, the water has the water use has risen in California with the drought. So that's going to be an issue. But you know, the one who can really steer us clear on that is our wonderful purveyor of Maven's Notebook, Miss Chris Austin. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey guys, how you doing? We needed your expertise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's, I tell you, up here in Northern California, where I am now, it's hot and dry and windy, and, uh, you know, there's some red flag warnings, and uh, they suspended all burn permits right now, and it's really dry, hot weather up here, so uh, we're going to cross our fingers for no fires, but, you know, we all know that's coming. Uh, yeah, and... We've got them in Arizona right now. Yeah. And, you know, the drought is still on. <laughs> you know, um, I, it was, it's interesting, and it's, I think it's a, a positive sign that uh, we're talking about it more in the media. There's a lot more articles on it now, and people are, you know, starting to focus on it a little bit, whereas, you know, the water usage up, you know, that was, uh, I believe that was data for, uh, well, probably data for March, because um, yeah. there's a delay in compiling and computing all of that. 
And, uh, you know, we had a very dry, dry winter. So coming out of the winter or coming out of those, you know, the two dry months, people need to start, you know, watering up their landscape. So, you know, I think that's uh, and and it came a little bit sooner than it usually does in a sense. So I think that may have had something to do with the water use. Uh, But mostly people, I think, just not paying attention uh, and we're going to see how it's going to go this year. It's going to be pretty tough. I think the biggest challenge is, you know, I think we're kind of used to living in a country where, you know, well, the price of meat's going up, right? So I'll just go and buy the hamburger and I'll pay the extra money and I'll, you know, grouse about it. <laughs> But you, you just can't do that with water, you know, and that's the big concern, that there isn't much water to go around, and the people who have the means to afford it will continue to use water and be fine with this idea of paying more, but it could really mean some serious shortages if people do that. So there's some big concerns out, out here. Um, the Las Virgenes Municipal Water District, which is a water district in Southern California in Calabasas, uh, a lot of well-to-do people, um, they're really in a bind because uh, they can only be served by Metropolitan State Water Project side. The infrastructure, the water infrastructure in Southern California is vast, but it doesn't mean that there's an ability to move water in any direction. Uh, over to where, whatever part of the service territory. It really depends a lot on where the infrastructure is. And there just isn't a line, a lifeline to send over there to Calabasas. And they have no usable groundwater resources. So they only have the limited amount of water that they're going to get from Metropolitan. And it's very serious. And so I believe that they are now down to one day a week. And they're also going to go and put in flow restrictors to people who continue to use too much water, which will limit the amount of water that will come out of their tap. That's how serious uh, they're getting. About and that, that area is like the Beverly Hills of the San Fernando Valley. You've got like the Kardashians, and they go down with tons of actresses and actors that live out that way. And they got huge estates, big yeah. churches. Yeah, so it's going to be it's going to be interesting how how they go on that. But you know, you know, the people even up in Northern California, you know, you get a lot of this. Uh, the accusations are flying between two uh, Valley Ag titans and, and about water prices and food. Oh, and used with that. Now, that's actually not Northern California. That's I mean, Southern California. Yeah, that's oh. in Kern County. Yeah, yeah, they there's a joke that goes around that says that down in Kern County, they just sue each other once, you know, every every five years or so, just so they can all get together and have a reunion. Uh, <laughs> they, 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 uh, they tend to fight a lot about water, and I think it's a sign of, you know, how scarce the resource is. Um, you know, now in the San Joaquin Valley, we have uh, all farms of all sizes. Uh, you know, we have, there are some small farms, some small family farms, some medium farms, and there's also large industrial agriculture. Um, and I guess the two largest, one, two of the largest farmers in the San Joaquin Valley 
are uh, John Boswell um, and, and John Vidovich, Boswell and Vidovich. And they are having a, they've been fighting back and forth for, for months now. Uh, Vidovich started building a pipeline uh, to kind of transverse the valley from his, you know, he has, owns a lot of acres in the valley that he's farming. And so he's running, building a pipeline that has to cross underneath um, other people's, <laughs> other people's canals and I, and maybe even some of their farmland. I don't know. Although I think it's just the canal. So there's a, a, a the other water agency or water interest in the area has a canal that he's trying to put this pipeline through. And so they parked their bulldozers on either side of the canal in the path of where he was building this, this uh, pipeline. So blocking him essentially. Uh, and they've been in court and they're arguing back and forth. And now um, they say that Boswell is pumping, is it Boswell or I, one of them, I'm sorry, I don't want to say the name and get it wrong, and I don't want to flip through this thing, but one of them is pumping water and putting it into a surface reservoir, and they say, you know, he's pumping too much water and it's all leaving by evaporation, and, uh, you know, they're... Uh, they're really fighting back and forth and a lot in the uh a lot in the courts and I don't think they're anywhere near through yet. What's what's rather entertaining too is that uh one of them sued Boswell for uh they said that he was buzzing their cattle with a large helicopter causing the animals to uh, stampede. So huh. that's that's the you know, how down in the dirt they get down there and uh so yeah, it's it's kind of humorous to to uh, listen to to read about. Uh, my uh, colleague Lois Henry at SJV Water keeps eye on that story for us, and that's another great website worth uh, worth your time to take a look at. SJVWater.org, um, and you always get all the who's throwing the dirt at who there. <laughs> well, just just for edification, because you're you're always forthright. Everything. North of my office in Riverside, I call Northern California. <laughs> yeah. That, I, that's what I, that, I mean, maybe that's, but, I, I should do it more correctly, but I just look at everything north of Riverside, you know, uh, that's that's Northern California. <laughs> well, there are those that will tell you that Southern California be, uh, begins below Shasta Dam. Yeah. You know, and and still we and you know there are those that say that you know the uh LADWP uses city water only because uh the LADWP owns most of the Owens Valley so they figure that's not imported water that's water from the from lands that we own far away so no, that that I don't think they actually say that all the time I have I I should be careful but it's a joke you yeah. know yeah. Well, a topic I know is, you know, we have a, a great fisherman uh, on the show, which is Mr. Chris Davies. And because of the situation with the drought and the water and stuff, they're, they're now trucking more salmon. Yeah. And um, what's interesting about this is they're tracking adult salmon. They're they're picking them up downstream and, and trans, transporting them up to higher reaches of these streams where there's the colder water that they can spawn in. Uh 
salmon need cold water to spawn, and that cold water needs to be maintained while those eggs are in the nest, you know, so that they will hatch. So this it's interesting because most of the time when you hear about truck, trucking uh, salmon in California, we're trucking the juveniles from the hatcheries down into the delta so they don't have to come down the river. So I think it's a little bit unusual, um, but probably not unheard of that they're moving adults up upstream. Uh, there's a lot of concern because the last two years with those particular salmon runs, uh, there's been some devastating loss in the spawning. And salmon have a three-year cycle. So, uh, you know, it will be devastating to the population if they aren't successful in spawning this year. So fingers crossed for that. Um, it's also a little bit of a dress rehearsal for another project that they're working on, which will be to truck the salmon and put them in the colder streams up above Shasta Dam. Uh, it's quite an elaborate pro project uh, to return them up to, uh, you know, up to the McLeod River in particular because they it's, it's a very cold stream. And the plan is that they're going to take the adult salmon up there and have them spawn, and then they'll have a contraption that will catch the juvenile salmon as they come down the river because they're, you know, they're not going to be able to go into Shasta Lake and find a way out. So they're going to catch them at the bottom of the tributary and then truck them around uh, the dam and put them in the river. That's the plan. Uh because the river is just getting too hot. That's really what it's about. The river below Shasta Dam, um, you know, it's it, it's hard for, it's been difficult for the Bureau of Reclamation to maintain temperature in the stream. Uh, they have a temperature control device that they use at Shasta Dam that releases water from lower levels of the dam, which is where the colder water is. But They've had problems with maintaining that cold pool when the uh, reservoir gets drawn down low. Um, guess what? It's, the water's not, not cold anymore. So that has been devastating to salmon. And I think that has happened like two years in a row now that we've had problems at Shasta Dam in terms of temperature management in the Sacramento River. So... I think, you know, they're trying to do the best they can for the species, so we'll we'll cross our fingers and hope, hope for the best because we all love California salmon, right? Yeah. Uh, Mr. Davey, as, as being a formidable angler, have you noticed in the lakes and streams in California and rivers, have they, uh, what's the right word here, limited the amount of uh, fishing you're allowed to have? Not so far, Rob. In fact, here, you know, the water levels aren't aren't too bad. Uh, I've been to several of the lakes recently in the springtime here, and the reservoirs are, while not at full pool, uh, are certainly not, uh, you know, the devastating pictures that you see published on state websites and things like that. And, um, you know, lake, lakes empty with bare hillsides that used to be covered in water. So it's pretty good down here, and of course, there's no there's no limit to the fishing that that I've experienced so far. That, that's good. Yeah, they do have uh, limits up in the you know in Northern California. The Department of Fish and Wildlife does set uh, times. You you can fish 
there, there are you are allowed to fish for salmon in the rivers, but you're limited to how much you can catch, and you're limited into yeah. the dates in which yeah. you can catch them. Um, yeah. You know, so those kind of restrictions uh, do exist up here. So if you are going fishing, really anywhere, you can check it out at the Department of Fish and Wildlife uh, uh, website, wildlife.ca.gov. And you will know all you need to know about fishing in California. Yeah, great resource there. Go to it often. You know, you can see not you know not only current fishing conditions um, in terms of weather, but also fish reports are available on those websites too. And there's private websites that publish that as uh, that as well. Rob, to answer your question, I think right now, as it stands today here in the southern part of the state, the fishery is alive and well. That's good. That's good. Uh, now, we should point out that, that it, your reservoirs down there aren't looking too bad, but the reservoirs in Southern California are much, much smaller than, you know, Oroville or Shasta Dam yep. up here, and even right. Folsom Lake. So, you know, it's great that they have water down there, and they certainly will need that water, and it will be useful, but um, it's not it's not the same thing in volume. So I don't want listeners to think that Southern California has tons of water and Northern California will be dry because that's not the case. No, good, point, uh, good thing to point out. Yeah. Well, Chris, I've been reading it about this, you know, 1% of the climate financing uh, goes towards, you know, supposed to go towards uh, forest and wetlands, but, you know, and they need it to help pull carbon out of, out of the air. And I also saw that, uh, was it uh, Senator Feinstein, uh, uh, Kelly, and Simona from Arizona? Um, they uh, launched a, a bill, a Senate Bill 4251 here in Arizona, uh, that supports to rehydrate the environment and, and, and ag uh, situations and water structure. I guess they call it the Stream Act. And yeah, they, well, that's kind of the name of the government, you know, is to try and come up with an acronym that spells something that is somewhat related to it. So they they stretch it. Support to rehydrate the environment. Agriculturalities. Yeah. Uh yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. Keep in mind, uh federal stuff generally goes, you know, has a much much more broader uh, you know, reach of people than just something that's happening within the state. So a lot of competition for these funds, um, but that's good. Uh, yeah, what you know, more money for storage and water recycling and and desalination. Uh, I'll have to say, seven hundred and fifty million for water storage. Seven hundred and fifty million doesn't buy you much in terms of dams, but um, if that's the kind of water storage that you're looking for. Um, but hey, we all like any kind of money, right? So oh, yeah, you know, but, but but you know, supporting the wetlands and things, I think is is is, is a good a good idea. I mean, oh yeah, know, oh I mean, absolutely. They, they, yeah. pull, they pull out, they pull out a lot of turf in California. I know they're certain they do it not to the same effect as California here in Arizona, but uh, you know we need a way to pull carbon out of the out of the ground, and we need to have uh, the temperatures lowered and, uh, and everything else. So we really got to support that. We have a guest coming on who's going to talk more about that uh, after you. But um, well, I, yeah, I, there's a there's a lot of uh, discussion going on right now um, in the Delta and in the Central Valley. This idea of deep carbon storage.
storage, which mm-hmm. is beyond wetlands. A wetlands store carbon in that, and and they have their own way of doing this. But this is not what they're talking about. What they what they would do is they would, you know, gather the CO2, the carbon dioxide, and they pump it down down deep, deep, deep into the earth, into these formations, like miles down, you right. know, uh, to sequester it. And it does it does go there. Apparently, they can get, you know, they can get the carbon dioxide down in there to keep it stored. And the geology in the delta in the Central Valley is actually uh, ideal for this. Um, the one thing that I had uh, trouble getting my wrapping my mind around was how they get get the co2 to the places where they're going to inject it because the place where you're going to inject it in the ground is probably not anywhere near the places where the co2 is being generated so i don't know if it's a pipeline or trust i i tried to ask a question and i never did get an answer on that um but the interesting thing about deep carbon storage is that it does provide an option for farmers that may have to fallow land. I mean, there there is a, a possible income source for you know for your fallowed land if it can be used for this deep carbon storage. So um, you know, it's interesting the technologies that are coming around. We'll just have to see if you know we take them up. So yeah. And last thing that interested me, and I'm sure it did Chris as well, is. Uh, you know, Melissa Furtado, we were asking her to come down to a uh, yeah. the annual BIA uh, Building Industry and Inland Empire uh, Water Symposium that's coming here in in, uh, in August uh, to speak. But they uh, they their schedule couldn't her schedule couldn't make it good. But I know her and uh, Senator uh, Dave Cortez, I think is how you pronounce it. They sent a letter to uh, uh, Attorney General Mer- Mary Garland requesting. Uh, investigation of profiteering and water rights abuses in, in Western states. Do you see that? I know. I know they're ta- everybody in, in in Washington's talking about that the gas companies and the, all, everybody's profiteering from all this inflation stuff. And I don't know if that's a truism or not. But how do you see that yeah. in the water world? Yeah, I don't know about inflation or anything like that. But yeah, you know, they, there's concern that. Uh, people are out there buying land, like hedge funds buying land, um, agricultural land, uh, basically for the water rights, and that there con- there's a concern that they're going to, you know, hold that water and make it, you know, unavailable when it's needed to other people or sell it off at the highest to the highest bidder, um, you know, along those lines. I actually did a webinar today at, uh, back around lunchtime on the California water futures, which is something that I think people, it, it's a very difficult to understand. And I certainly couldn't explain it in, even if we had a whole session. To, um, it's very complicated uh, type of transaction. But no water in the in the California water futures, no water ever changes hands. So California water futures are different than what they're talking about in this in this article. And she's talking about hedge funds and other things that come in and uh, you know buy large amounts of land and then hold on to those water rights and maybe sell them off or or what. They're not exactly sure what you know 
what exactly would happen, but there's some there's con- some concern about that. Um, Harvard uh, bought some grapevines in the Cuyama Valley, which is up above the Santa Barbara area, I believe. Um, and that's there's a lot of concern about that because they have a large land holding of grapevines in there. And the Cuyama Valley is a, you know, I believe it's critically overdrafted. Um, it's, uh, if it's not critically overdrafted, it's on its way, put it that way. Um, so, you know, there's concern about what Harvard is going to do because they got a lot of money, right, uh, you know, to keep their grapevines alive. But what does that do for, you know, all the smaller farmers that have been living and working on that land? Uh, you know, for a long time. So, you know, it's, uh, there's, I think there's just a lot of concern as water becomes more scarce that people are going to hoard it. So, you know, sell it off to the highest bidder when things get really, really dry. Yep. And it's getting there quickly. So, well, Chris, as always, we, we thank you for coming on and giving us a perspective of what's happening in uh, the current week in water. In California. Uh, for our listeners, uh, if you want to get more information uh, every single day about what the water issues are in California, go to mavensnotebook.com, uh, become a subscriber, become a, uh, a sponsor if, if you'd like. Uh, I know uh, Christavia and I get uh, every day at uh, early morning uh, up pops Maven's Notebook and we get the latest and greatest. And, and Chris gets into more people than we can do because that's what she does full time, and we have real jobs at our companies. But uh, uh, it's a great, great uh, uh, blog to read, and uh, we do appreciate Chris you coming on every week. And uh, we will talk to you next week. All right. Good evening, everybody. Have a great week, Chris. You too. All right. We're going to take a little brief break, and uh, we'll be back with our next guest. And uh, Mr. Davy will lead off the conversation. So stick around for the second half of the Water Zone. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. They love you. They love you not. They love you. Satisfying your customers, it's a full-time job. Want an easy way to make them happy? Try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with Nursery Direct. Could save you and your clients a pretty peony. Think about it. Instead of driving to the nearest nursery, picking up the order, and then driving to the job site, the crew's able to begin work right away. That cuts time and labor. Savings you can pass on to your customers. And you can get your plants delivered direct, even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area. Here's another quick tip. Keep a substitutions list on standby for every project so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you. They really love you. Aww. If you knew there was a pipe cement that works better than the one you're currently using, is better for you and the environment, and costs the same or less, would you buy it? Well, no-brainer, right? Weldon, the trusted leader in solvent cements for over 60 years, is pleased to introduce a new line of solvent cements that does all that. Introducing the Eco Series line of solvent cements for PVC piping systems. 
Not only does it work great and set fast, it also has 30% lower solvent emissions and less smelly fumes. A better workplace environment when you're installing pipes. But don't just take our word for it. EcoSuries products are the only solvent cements that are Green Seal certified for environmental innovation for effective performance, improved working conditions, and for use with potable water. Now available in a medium-bodied fast-setting blue formula, 905 Eco, and a regular-bodied fast-setting clear formula, 900 Eco. Pick up a can today from your local distributor and see, smell, and feel the difference, just like Joe Sweat, president of Sunrise Irrigation, did. He said, after using Weldon's 905 Eco, we immediately noticed the application was smooth and there was noticeably less odor than other blue solvent cements on the market. The guys love it. To learn more about Eco Solvent Cements from Weldon, visit the website at www.weldon.com or call the Technical Service Hotline at 877-477-8327. That's 877-477-8327. Miss your favorite show? Download the podcast at kcaaradio.com. KCAA Loma Linda. Back to the second half of the Water Zone Radio Show, everybody. I'm your host, Chris Davy, along with Rob Starr. We have such an exciting guest here for the second half today. This gentleman's name is Carlos Chapek, and he is the Policy and Technical Director of the Watershed Management Group in Tucson, Arizona. Also worthwhile to point out that he's a founding member of the Watershed Management Group as well. Calo has his Master's of Science in Watershed Management from the University of Arizona and over 10 years of experience in applied watershed management, planning, and policy. Uh, he specializes in urban water applications, things like water harvesting and green infrastructure, stream restoration, eco-sanitation. So he's also worked on several very successful local policy initiatives there in the uh, Tucson area, the Green Streets Active Practice Guidelines. Tucson Waters Residential Rainwater Rebate Program, Tucson's Residential Graywater Ordinance Revision Process, and through the Complete Streets Task Force, the adoption of Tucson's Complete Streets Policy. Rob, can you add some more? Sure. Cadlow has served on the Citizens Water Advisory Committee for Tucson Water, including chair of the Conservation and Education Subcommittee, and on the University of Arizona School of Natural Resource and the Environment's Advisory Board. And Catlow currently serves as the Complete Streets Coordinating Council uh, following the 2019 adoption of the Complete Streets Policy. And Catlow's passion is to link people to their local environment for improved stewardship and prosperity. I commend him a lot for that. Welcome to the show, Catlow. Thank you. Uh, great to, I'm so great to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Rob and Chris. Oh, you're very, very welcome for that. Hey, we, we always start off the conversation easy, and we're very casual about how we do this. And uh, no embarrassing questions, I promise. But <laughs> what, <laughs> we don't do that. We're not shock jocks. We have real jobs during the day uh, with, our, with, our, with our main sponsor, which is the Toro Company, who we both work for. Uh, but what made you decide in your lifetime that you wanted to go into, you focus your ambition on doing water and environment? What, what drove you? What, what made you decide to do that? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think with most things in life, we kind of fall into them or they they accept us more or less. I did grow up here in Southern Arizona. So, you know, I've always been connected to water and, and or the lack of water. 
but I think it was, I went to college in Illinois and did an internship shortly after and uh, spent the summer surveying streams and realizing that I wanted to work on stream restoration. And somehow I ended up back in Arizona, far and away from any stream restoration work. And uh, I'm slowly working myself back towards that as I just finished up some stream restoration work uh, last week. So I feel like uh, 25 years later, I'm slowly getting back to what I initially wanted to do. But being a watershed manager, I'm kind of been a jack of all trades and a master of none at the same time as I was listening to your introduction. Um, so, it, But it's been great. I, I have so many different interests. It's hard to dive too deep on any one of those as something else catches my eye or mind. Well, we always tell we always tell our listeners that, especially residents, that they should treat their property as a watershed and learn how to manage that. But can you give us a little history? I know how awesome. you found that you founders of the of the uh, uh, watershed group, but um, give us a little history on how that started. Sure. Um, yeah. So I went to came back for grad school at the University of Arizona here in Tucson and met up with some other fellow grad students and we're all you know, really jazzed with what we were learning in the watershed program and wanting to apply that and not finding many opportunities. So we decided to kind of try something ourselves and became a, a nights and weekends thing until a few years later. My I actually talked my wife into uh, <clears throat> into the organization and she became the first employee and becoming the executive director and still is today. Excellent. Chris, I'll let you uh, jump in here and uh it I was just gonna say, Rob, it's so interesting, uh Catlo, as you were mentioning how we, you know, sometimes it's all into stuff, right? So, you know, my ambitions out of out of college was walking up up and down northern California streams, you know, doing trout population surveys. Uh, <laughs> but I mm-hmm. ended up uh, I ended up in irrigation and and uh, and and it's been great. So um just gonna I think my question, Rob, is is to ask Catlo if you can just tag onto your um you know, initial uh, question there. I know that uh, WMG or or the Watershed Management Group um, has a lot of stuff to uh, to offer. Um, you know, kind of give us, if you will, the thirty thousand uh, foot view of of um, you know what's your what's a day what's a day in the life of uh, Catlo Chapek look like. <laughs> No, uh, as I said, I'm I'm kind of a, a bit of a generalist, and I I dabble in many different areas. But that's what I love about Watershed Management Group. Everything is is very much focused on education, uh, first and foremost, and engaging the community to become stewards of our our environment, our resources, and essentially to you know either preserve or restore those natural systems back into our daily lives. And so that's ranging from we we teach a range of free workshops, free classes on rainwater harvesting, gray water, composting toilets, um, uh, even native edible plants, to then we have our living lab and learning center, which is 100% on rainwater, and it's a half-acre campus. And so, you know, we manage our water resources very carefully and and really try to live within our means um, and demonstrate that. And so we rely a lot on, you know, thinking about supplies as well as demands and how do we balance that. To then going out into the community and doing projects um, 
usually educational hands-on is kind of our stick. And um, we don't like to just teach classes, but teach as we're putting in systems. So we do that with schools, churches, businesses, neighborhoods, uh, people's homes. Um, and it's all about, you know, getting them connected to, uh, you know, finding out w- what their issue is, what they care about, and then kind of broadening them to, you know, what is that range of watershed-based issues that affect our community and environment? And how do we uh, build on that, enhance it, improve it, uh, become better stewards of that? And then, yeah. Can you tell I guess, yeah. Yo, go ahead. Keep going. Well, I was just going to say, so that's kind of our on-the-ground work. And then I try to then think about what are those lessons learned and scale them up. Okay, we're doing this at this one home, this one school. How do we scale that across the community? And then how do we become uh, a demonstration for other communities? Right. So let me ask you another question. Let me ask a little bit more about the Living Lab, actually, because we just got like a ping here on our uh, from our listener group. Just asking about it, and I think I think if I'm if I'm right from from doing my research from Rob a little earlier, the Living Lab is is it's at your headquarters, right? And it's sort of like exhibits and things like that. No, oh, before I forget, you also won Arizona's Greatest Workplace Challenge too back in twenty something. I forget the date, but is that right? <laughs> That's correct. Yeah, we were fortunate to be gifted this property um, and left. Uh, in somebody's estate and so we've actually this year is our 10th year at this location and we're still working to improve those systems so we're learning a lot from it as essentially the learning lab and uh, we use it a lot for educational programming hence the learning center well you guys do a lot of work i know you work at the santa cruz watershed the uh, Salt Verde and Gia watersheds and stuff, but you also did something uh, really interesting and, and, and amazing. I know you have a lot of interns and things that help, and, and we like the fact that you you do a lot of education. I mean, that's what uh, when we started this radio show it was all about educating people about the the drought in California. And now we expanded it all over the all over the country. But uh, you were doing something to help eradicate some tall weeds. And I'm not sure I pronounced them correctly. Was it a rundo donax? It's like a giant reed from this uh, uh, creek that you guys were trying to help uh, clean out. And uh, yeah, can you tell us a little about that? And and how do you get people? I mean, I know you have the the interns and stuff, but how how do you promote to get other assistance from people to come and join? Yes, um, I, we are very much. Um, you know, everything we do is volunteer-based and really rely on a community of volunteers. So we're very thankful and appreciative of the volunteers that come out and help, learn, et cetera, even, you know, the peer-to-peer networks that they even create. And our most recent effort is, as you mentioned, and you said it uh, perfectly, a rundo donax or giant reed. It's an invasive uh, plant from the, the Middle East, and it was we think it was planted here as an ornamental, escaped, and has colonized many of our, uh, you know, perennial and seasonal creeks and rivers in, in our region. And the thing is, it, it chokes out, consumes, uh, chokes out other native uh, plants that are, exist in those creek areas, as well as, uh, you know, consumes a lot of groundwater at the same time. And it's interesting because it's become a problem, um, but partly due to some 
uh, you know, in the last decade or so, some successes and actually restoring seasonal flows to riparian areas that this plant has become more of a problem. So, um, you know, it's funny. It's, it's, um, we're very excited that we have, we are seeing the return of seasonal flows, even in the midst of a long-term drought, but at the same time recognizing, okay, there's a lot more work to do. And so a lot of it is educating, engaging local neighbors on the issue um, and cutting it down from its source. So starting at the top of the watershed and working our way down so it doesn't recall on us. Do you? Hey, uh, let me ask you a question. Sorry, Rob. I was just going to. No, no, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask. I was going to ask Catlow. So, I mean, you mentioned earlier education and how important it is to to the watershed management group. Um, I know from other organizations and and alliances that that we're involved with, uh, Rob. Both you and I know that you know education classes that sort of that uh, stuff is you know it's a difficult task. It's it's hard to do. So, Catlow, maybe we can ask you to. Uh, dig a little deeper into the education portion of, uh, of of your work, the classes you do, the tours you do, that kind of stuff. Maybe just give our listeners a a uh, roundhouse taste of that. Sure, and I think the most important thing about you know, I, I'm not a community specialist, but I, I have kind of become one, um, but often rely on many others in our in our organization. And it's it's really, you know, listening, understanding what are their issues, what are they facing, and then thinking about, you know, what you have to offer or how can you even learn from them and then go on that journey together. Because I think if, you know, we're just preaching, um, we're only going to preach to our choir instead of engaging. We really need to engage the larger community um, beyond our traditional sectors. And so that really means we need to move forward in, um, with that process of inclusivity being at the forefront. Right. You do do you do do classes though, right? I mean, you just mentioned uh, the gray water harvesting class that that was a uh, that was mentioned a little a little earlier, um, and you mm-hmm. have a lot of family oriented events that that uh, uh, that happen uh, uh, within <laughs> your organization as well. What are some of the current ones? I'm impressed you you all do your homework. Uh, that's right. We do have Family Saturdays, and it's just been a year that we've been doing Family Saturdays, and they've been taking off in popularity. Uh, so, yeah, everything from – so the city of Tucson offers uh, rebates for gray water and rainwater, and there's an educational requirement as part of that. So we teach that along with a number of other organizations in the community. And so that's often an entry point. And then building on that, we have a range of field studies. So everything from learning, you know, about laundry to landscape systems to uh, how do composting toilets work for you, uh, those types of classes. So it's kind of looking at what are all the different entry points and then what's the range of practices we can showcase, provide, get somebody engaged in. And then ultimately, you know, our hope is that they get more interest in their own personal connection of what they do at home, what they do in their neighborhood, and how does that work towards restoring our heritage of flowing rivers here in Tucson. So the the Santa Cruz, the Rito, the Tanca Verde, and all of those creeks that used to flow seasonally or year-round. But thinking about conservation and how people can do that in their personal lives and how it's not about 
using less. It's about how do we better manage our resources so we can have, you know, fulfilling life, uh, enjoy ourselves, but at the same time, uh, restore our community's environment. You know, one of your... Do you, do you work with schools and stuff as well, uh, Catlow? Local, local, we do. local schools? Yeah. And so, again, the city of Tucson and uh, the water utility has been very supportive of rainwater harvesting and, and getting this education out there. And not only do they offer that rebate program, they also work with another local organization organization that is Arizona Statewide, Arizona Project WET. And the Arizona Project WET has a Recharge the Rain uh, curriculum that they work with schools. And part of that is an on-the-ground action component of actually building a rain basin and having the students design. And then we facilitate the implementation of that uh, there at their school. Well, you know, Tucson Tucson's a good city for water conservation. I was there. I, we, we're one of the sponsors of the Wyland Foundation, if you're familiar with that or not. And uh, we put mm -hmm. on what's called the National, the National Mayor's Challenge for Water Conservation. And Tucson won an award. We actually gave away a $50,000 Toyota vehicle to one of the schools there as, as, as charity. Uh, but they were very, very... Uh, gracious uh, and, and very conscientious about water. But one of the things I, I keep reading, I, I guess, I don't know if you cloned the term, but you use it a lot, hydro-local, and I guess is that yeah. for the water security and, and, and uh, resilience? Can you talk a little about that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you for bringing that up. Uh, so Tucson is a leader in many ways, but we still have a long ways to go. And so it's kind of before I get dive into hydrolocals, but thinking about, you know, where are we at with our a secure water future? And I don't believe the crisis is about to start with uh, the shortage on the Colorado River, which city of Tucson relies on, uh, I believe, 90, 95% of our water supply currently comes from the Colorado River. But, you know, thinking about how we've mined our groundwater for the last 100 plus years, and so switching to Colorado River water has allowed us to recover some of that groundwater. But what happens in a future escalation of shortages? And how is Tucson a player in the region if we're trying to restore our own rivers and watershed, but at the expense of the Colorado River and other communities? So we started thinking about, you know, how can we as a community be more self-reliant from a water resource perspective and be long-term water secure. And really the the primary way is thinking about being hydro-local to where we uh, manage our local water resources so effectively that we aren't reliant on importing outside waters and or mining our groundwater. So if you think about it, the average Tucsonan uses just shy of 80 gallons per person per day. I believe over half of that is wasted water. We're just not using it efficiently, and we can easily cut that down. And then we can even go further. So then we can think about, you know, how can homes, how can businesses, how can commercial centers become productive units of water? And then we look to the sky and the rain that falls, and we're in an arid region. But, you know, there's <laughs> Brad Lancaster, uh, the author and guru of rainwater harvesting, who lives here in Tucson, says, more rainwater falls on the city of Tucson than Tucson delivers to its customers. So we just simply need to be 
you know, thinking about how do we use our local resources, uh, capture, collect, manage, uh, recycle, uh, recharge those uh, local water resources. So that's being hydro local. And I think that's a, you know, instead of looking at desal, looking at other more, um, you know, other importing other resources, we need to first look within. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. Where, if you were the the czar of water for Arizona, what is the top? <laughs> and and I, I'm not the governor, but I can. I'm not Ducey, but I can. I'll appoint you. I'll give you that title. What would you think? Are what would you believe are the top three issues of water in in in, in the state of Arizona? Oh, no, nah, nah, this is a. Oh, that's a tough question. Um, one I've been thinking about, but I'm not sure I can quickly spout off. But let me let me see if I can do my best. I think there's so many different water resource contexts across the state, and so I think first and foremost we need to look uh, towards our in, you know uh, indigenous partners. So they, for example, the Gila River Indian Community, uh, the Tona Awesome, and others that, you know, what are their perspectives? Um, as we've, there's so many historic and, you know, colonial issues related to that, but I think really having them drive that conversation as we start to look forward may open up new thoughts, new ideas, new ways to manage um, that many of us haven't even thought about. And so then to kind of build on that, then we have, you know, rural groundwater issues where uh, groundwater is being mined, but we don't have the resources or they don't have the resources to import it. And it may not make sense to import water. So how can we get rural areas to be more self-sufficient um, and water secure? So then the urban context of just as I mentioned, of, you know, we can be net zero so easily in an urban center from a recycling perspective. So I think looking across the state, uh, there's just, it's a very complex scene, um, but often we all turn to what's that next bucket of water that we can tap into instead of thinking about how do we better manage our buckets of water. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Do you, do, does Arizona, because I'm new to Arizona, my office is in California with, with Chris, and uh, I go back and forth, uh, but do you, not you personally, but have you seen any algae blooms? I know California has a lot, Florida has a lot, other places. Are, are, is Arizona uh, experiencing any of that for contaminated water and so forth? Um, algae blooms in terms of, yeah, in the reservoirs and lakes? Yeah. Yeah, I, water quality is probably not my strength. Um, what concerns me the most is the amount our groundwater is contaminated. So for me, my biggest concern is, you know, as the Colorado River has further shortages declared and further restrictions, we will be turning back to our groundwater. And the more we are looking at our groundwater, the more we're finding emerging contaminants. So one, it, it's really sad to me that over the last six decades, we haven't protected that resource. And then two is how quickly can we turn that around and, and restore the water quality of our groundwater. From a surface water, Tucson's not reliant on surface water. So those uh, those issues have 
have not been at the forefront of my knowledge. Okay. Chris, any follow-up questions that you may have? Yeah, just, you know, one trailing kind of one, because, you know, Rob, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a great person for advocacy and all that sort of stuff and involved in many <clears throat> different um, aspects of, of, of our industry and committees and all that sort of stuff. So I see, Tatlow, that you've got things like, you know, the Green Living Co-op and the Docent Program and advocacy and stewardship programs and moon monsoon squads and stuff like that. It's an important part of any business, is it, uh, of, of any group, rather, or any effort. Um, and I can see it's part of yours. Any comments you can make on that for our listeners? I, yeah, I think, again, it's listening to the community, and we develop programs to try to address different issues in the community, engage different sectors, and we're constantly evolving, changing those programs. I think the one thing that excites me most, and maybe we finally have a mascot, is uh, the beaver. And thinking about beaver-related restoration across southern Arizona, where people weren't even thinking about beavers 10 years ago. And now we're starting to partner with them more on how to restore our watershed. That's important. Well, real quick, as we've got about, about 45 seconds here, how can people get a hold of your organization? Uh, great question. So watershedmg.org is our website. Uh, and if you're in Tucson or you're visiting Tucson, stop by our living lab. We're open Monday through Friday. And then again, as you mentioned, family Saturdays and free Saturday tours. So uh, we look forward to people visiting and getting in touch. Yeah. And um, what we, on behalf of Chris and I, we appreciate you coming on and explaining what you guys do. Uh, when I found out about you, it was very in- intriguing to me and, I wanted to get uh, people to notice who you are, and uh, and I know you take sponsorships and things, and and uh, so anybody who's interested, go to that website and uh, or get a hold of uh, Catlow, and uh, we appreciate you coming on the show and taking the time out. Yeah, and thank you both so much for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. Great. Well, you have a great day, and uh, we'll talk to you. Short- we'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye bye. Well, Chris, that was a pretty good uh, conversation with Gallo and uh, learned, learned a lot about his organization, doing good work out here in Arizona. So I uh, like to feature people like that, uh, somebody who's real earnest and honest about uh, uh, and a passion for doing it. He's got definitely has fire in the belly, and we, we like people like that. It was awesome, buddy, no doubt. Good. Well, it's time to say goodbye to our listeners for the week. We'll be back next week with some great shows. And uh, the one thing that Chris and I always tell you, I'm going to let Chris tell us so 